You're listening to The Cave of Solitude, your pop culture and comic book podcast coming to you from the megacity metropolis of Toronto. I'm your host, Eric Anthony. This is episode 251, chatting with my pal, Adam Chapman. I don't know if you're allowed to wear that hat right now. I know. It's in the middle of a, of, a, of a race for the wild card spot. I mean, if I told Kelly, we, I don't know if we'd be friends anymore. <laughs> All the reasons these days why people can't be friends. This is maybe a good one. <laughs> it is a good one. <laughs> no, sure. I, it's, uh, it, like I said to, uh, I don't know if you listened to the episode I did with Steve Mitchell. I said to him, it's, I like the team, like the history, but it's a fashion mm-hmm. statement, right? It's the hat that okay. kind of just goes with everything. Yeah, so, yeah. But I was going to put on my, my Blue Jay hat just for you. And I said, I don't want to go up there and get it right now. Let me just wear what's here. <laughs> you know, you should have just gone hatless then. I mean, that would have been better. Maybe, but I, I don't know how crazy I look with my all day. Yeah. So I keep a hat on for the, for the person seeing me. All right, all right. But we're recording. There's no intro. Adam Chapman. Oh, we're recording already. Right we're here. recording. Because right. you know what? Time is of the essence. So. We're gonna make we're gonna make sure that uh, we get all the time in that we can. Adam Chapman, two fifty one. I'm gonna make some noise because I'm gonna open up my open uh, it up, my, pop my, it. My, my gin fizz here, so I'm gonna have some 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 uh, cooler with gin in it. Let's do this. There you go. Episode two fifty one. We're turning a corner on one of those quarterly things, and I said I, I gotta get my buddy Adam on the the next phase of next fifty, number one of the next fifty. I was listening to your 250, and that's the one thing I did laugh at because you're like, because you and your wife are talking about like 250 is a lot, and I'm like, ah, talk to me when you get to 900. Yeah, right. That's what I was thinking too. I'm like, you don't know what a lot is, <laughs> but um, still a lot. No, it yeah, and I was thinking about it, and you know what? It, it's just cool to think that you get to 50 or you get to 100, and the 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 things along the way that you the conversations you have the things you've read because of it that's all kind of part of the journey and I think of you know not so much the the the, the cost of having a website or to host a podcast that's nothing really but it's man I bought a lot of comic books and read a lot of things because of it but I don't regret it I don't because it's been I don't know. It's it's what it's what we like, right? It it oh, brings you sure. joy. So the the so many good things come from doing something you like, like little trickle effects. So and this is one of them, right? Me and you being able to talk yeah. about the stuff we love that no one else could quite understand the way we do. It's funny. I was thinking the other day when you because obviously you're at two fifty. That's a big milestone. I was thinking like my show didn't really become the show I I would think it is now until after I was already done two hundred and fifty episodes. Like I didn't really start doing interviews on mass until after two fifty. So like I had two hundred fifty episodes where I mean obviously half those were reviews and their their own thing. But there's a lot of episodes that were just not interviews at all and it wasn't until after that point where i kind of turned that corner and decided the interviews were the thing so it's kind of crazy to me that you've hit 250 and i'm like man I, my show hadn't even discovered what it really was yet at 250 yeah and i you know what at this point i people say to me what's your format and it changes every 50 i there's stuff that i do try and do differently that may or may not become a thing uh there's times where i have repeated guests like you're going to be on in the next couple of weeks again, so mm-hmm. bef- probably before two fifty five for sure. 
So it's just, it is what it is. It's just a place where I want people to come to have conversation. If there happens to be a really cool interview that lines up, that's a, that's a great bonus. And if I get to talk to a friend or someone who I enjoy speaking with every week for at least two hours, that's a good bonus too. And you'd be surprised sometimes at who ends up telling you they listen to an episode. So you just, you just got to keep doing it. You never know what happens. That's true. I um I reached out to an, uh, he was an assistant I guess an assistant editor at the time at Marvel in the mid nineties. So I knew this guy's name because in the early to mid two thousands there was a website that published something called uh, the Life of Riley Archives. So basically that this guy Andrew Golitz had gone through the entire Clone Saga, and I don't know how he got Glenn Greenberg to do this, but Glenn Greenberg was the assistant editor during much of the Clone Saga in the Spider Office. Worked with Tom Brevoort and a lot of other people that were involved in the Spider Office at the time, and they did like uh, the entire Clone. Saga, they summarized everything that happened in every issue, and then you have Glenn pop in with, like, this is what was happening behind the scenes in the office. So I've known about this guy's name forever. So I reached out to him and was like, you know, would you do the show? And, like, I was not sure if he was going to say yes, and he was like, you know, send me some links to some of the episodes you've done, and I meant to do it, hadn't done it yet, and then he immediately was like, I see that you've interviewed a bunch of friends of mine. I've, I've, I've downloaded those. I'll do the interview. I'm like, okay, great, because uh, I knew that, like, I, I've, I love that period in, in the mid-90s. to mid I love talking to people in editorial in that period. I find it so endlessly fascinating because so many things were both working for and against these people. Um, anyways, I'm really excited about that, but that was an interesting one because like you know he he's listened to the show another one that i was surprised that he started listening was uh, stefano gaudiano i had him on the show he was an anchor uh, well he's also a penciler but he's primarily known as anchor and he was like oh you know i've listened to your show you should talk to this person you should talk to that person so he helped me you know reach out to new people or, or get a new perspective on new people i should have on the show so yeah you, you never know who's going to listen and who's going to listen to certain episodes and it's going to surprise you yeah you just got to take a shot sometimes and you know uh for instance, the episode I did with uh, inker Steve Mitchell, who happened to be a filmmaker, the link to that came from my friend in Britain, Dave Molyneux, who kind of, oh, really? yeah, he just said, here, try this link and see, you know, email this guy and tell him such and such. And it turned into a, and the person I interviewed didn't know who it was that kind of led me there. They didn't know each oh, really? other directly, but <laughs> there was a person in the middle that they knew. So it's, you just never know what kind of interesting doors open to you because you just say, hey, do you want to talk? Oh, for sure. I mean, I know this is a sore spot with you and Dan Gavazdan, but that's how I got Roger Stern on the show is I just asked Ron Friends to kind of hook me up and he was nice enough to do so. Yeah. And, you know, eventually I, I thought nothing came of it. And then a while later, Roger reached out to me. He's like, oh, hey, how's it going? Basically, like, yeah, I'd love to do the show. So, like, it's one of those things where... You don't know who, what's going to work out. Uh, I think that's actually how I got, um, oh, uh, what's his name? Uh, it's going to drive me nuts. Uh, Michael Lark. Um, I got that purely because of Gariano, because Gariano spoke highly and said that this is worth doing, and I was able to talk to, uh, to him, and so that probably wouldn't have happened if he didn't have that good word of mouth. You don't know who's talks to who about what podcast they've been on, right? Like, you really don't know what that's like, if people even talk about it at all. But once in a while, it does matter. I did, I'm not the happiest with this but because i i leaned on one person that was i did uh, an interview with john dell twice a great interview he's a good anchor and i'm like you know what if this is my final year i have to at least try to do anything i can to get mark bagley on the show so i was like he's he's mark bagley's anchor if anyone's going to be able to ask mark bagley for me <laughs> i gotta reach out to this guy unfortunately i didn't hear back about it and that's a, a bit of a bummer to me and maybe i shouldn't have you know 
gone that way to be like, hey, do you think you can connect me with Mark? But, you know, if you if you don't try, what's the old Wayne Gretzky adage? Like, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. So, I mean, that's still true. And if I'm, you know, in the final year, I might as well go for every shot I can. Yeah, Actually, no. I, I have one. This is a, a last fun one. Was I, reached, I don't know if I told you this, Eric. I reached out to Dan DiDio a couple times. And I never hear back. And I, was, I messaged him, and I finally heard back this time. I'm like, whoa, Dan DiDio wrote back. And he was basically saying, like, I'm out of town right now, but maybe next week I can talk to you. But I only really want to do interviews if I have something new to promote, and I don't. And I was like, so are you talking to me or not? Like, I'm not really sure. And so I messaged him back. And then as I hit send, I realized that it had autocorrected from uh, Dan to Dad. So it looked as I was calling him my dad. And I'm like... I know you're not my dad. It just not a corrective. Like I was like freaking out, and he was like, "No, that's fine." I'm like, "Okay." And so, like, hopefully, I can keep this com- you know conversation going with the end of the year and eventually get him on because that would be really cool to be able to talk to him. But that was one of those ones where I was like, "Ah, I just called him dad." No, how do you come back from this? Yeah, <laughs> it's you, you. never know. You're right, and that's what I keep telling myself. From every person who might give you not give you a response, you might get that one who does. And you'll be pleasantly surprised at the the interaction you have. So I heard on one podcast once, it was, uh, I think, Comic Geek Speak, it was um, the member who passed away, Jamie. He always he always encouraged people, if ever you go to a con and there's a, a creator, artist, anyone who's been involved in these books whose work you appreciate, and they're there to be able to tell them, thank you, like, do it. And so I kind of... I kind of live by that and who I try to get as well onto the show. If For there's sure. like a, a, you know, it's, it's a person who, even if they're local, even if they are, um, someone I might know, if I, I, I want to be able to really say, you know, I like your work and I want, I want, and I like you and I want to let you know that to make the, I don't know, maybe it's a little sappy, but it's, you, you, you want to sometimes I mean, reach out and be able to tell those people that book meant a lot when I was a kid. Thank you. I mean, some of these guys don't go to cons. Right. I mean, they don't know. Right. I mean, I, I don't know if you heard my interview with Larry Houston. So he was the director on X-Men, the animated series. And he didn't really know that people really cared that much about his work. And that really, you know, and, and I don't think anyone realized just how much work he had done to save that show from itself. And so, so much of the DNA of that show is because he loved it, because he loved X-Men and thought the opportunity to bring it to the, the small screen was a huge opportunity. And so, but before... You know, a few years ago when the showrunners of that show uh, uh, published uh, previously on X-Men, which is their book, kind of a behind the scenes of the book, uh, sort of the show, I don't think people really realized who Larry Houston was and what he had done. And they kind of convinced him to go on Twitter as X-Men director is his handle and to really start kind of showing the stuff that he'd worked on. And I think he's getting a lot of following now because people realize how instrumental this guy was in so many of our childhoods. But we had no idea. And he didn't really know what it meant to people. It's kind of like I always hear the story about, you know, um, what's his name? Peter Cullen didn't really realize how much people loved Optimus Prime. He didn't really get it. He wasn't until, you know, when the Michael Bay was bringing the movies to the screen, they were like, we have to get Peter Cullen. And there was such a fan uproar that they might not get him. He had no idea that people loved it that much. Like, if you don't tell someone, they're not going to know. And so a lot of the comic creators, a lot of them, if they don't go to cons, they work very solo. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, they're they not part of a, a big office of people. Like, they work on their own at their drawing table and they do their work and they do what they love. And But they don't always get the feedback that from the fans of how much they're loving it. Um, obviously, it's different this day and age with Twitter, et cetera. There are more avenues for people to express their love of an artist and, and writer. But, you know, it's still very solo. And, yeah, it means a lot to be able to 
you know, hear from someone that what you did meant a lot to them. Um, actually, this interview I'm doing with Glenn Greenberg soon, um, as much as he was an editor on all this stuff, he did a few specific writing jobs that meant the world to me when I was younger. Uh, he worked on a book which was a, a continuity lover's uh, wet dream uh, called uh, Spider-Man the Osborne Journal, which was published, I think it was either right before or right after Revelation that ended the Clone Saga. And it basically tried to figure out and fix how do you stitch together the entire messy Clone Saga in the last like many years of continuity in a way that made sense to explain where Norman Osborne was what, what he was doing and why he wasn't interfering with the events that were happening until Revelations. And I always loved it. And again, it came out when I would have been 12, 13 years old. So I'm like absorbing all of continuity and loving this continuity heavy book that's explaining all these things. Absolutely loved it. Well, that's his brainchild. That's one of the things he's most proud of. So I cannot wait to talk to him about that because it meant such, so much to me as a kid. And so to be able to say that to a creator and be like, what you did really meant a lot to me and was a huge part of why I love comics, that's huge. Like you, I don't know. I mean, maybe he won't care, but maybe he'll be like, well, that's pretty cool. I'm glad that someone really loved that thing that, you know, was published years ago and probably doesn't get reprinted that often. I know. I, I think it does matter because, you know, even there's some um, – writers or artists who people it's so popular to hate them and you you know it almost makes you cool like yeah that did suck didn't it or that guy did no not know how to draw feet or whatever the case may be <laughs> but at the same time there was a lot of people who who did like their stuff who might not tell them it's important to tell to, even if it's people that may not be popular to say i like that guy let them know you know what i read these all these stuff all this stuff now i do a podcast i you know, share this with my kid, but it was your stuff that got me into it. So thank you. So why not, why not go out of the way to tell somebody that you appreciate something that they probably worked hard on, even if you might be the only person. Speaking of that, speaking of that, um, this episode, I wanted to have a little bit of fun and I made up a, a word association game to give you. And Can I some... ask one question of you first? Actually. Okay, okay, okay. Just because I, I don't want to move away from creators for a second. But um, my question is this. If you could, if there's one current creator mm-hmm. um, who would start to do a podcast, who who would you want to hear a podcast from? I mean, obviously you have Donny Cates is doing one. You have Rob Liefeld does a podcast. Uh, the, um, uh, the Tiny Tenants guys, Baltazar and Franco, they do a podcast. But if there's someone else who isn't one of those, who would you most want to hear a podcast from? Just to hear them pontificate about stuff or talk about their career or their comics they've done or Modern whatever. day. A modern day yeah. or someone living? Uh, let's say currently writing and currently then I'll say writing. living and then I'll say dead. That's a good question. Okay. Oh, man. I'm looking at the shelf now trying to think of somebody. Mm. I can think of two that immediately come to mind for me of current guys. That are... are Okay, you go ahead. Let me okay. let me let me so, see where you're coming from. Okay, the first one would be Dan Slott because I yeah. think he has a lot to say. Yeah, and I think he'd be interesting, and yeah. I think his stories are interesting about. And he's been in the business a long time, and I think he's an interesting perspective. So I think he'd be interesting to talk about his own work, to talk about where the industry has gone because he's seen a lot of movement in his lifetime from where he started working on like Ren and Stimpy comics, et cetera, to writing Fantastic Four. So I think he'd be of an interesting perspective. Is I don't always love his writing, but I always have, like, for example, when he calls up uh, John Suntress and Word Balloon and they talk for two or three hours, I'm never skipping it. I'm never being like, oh, I don't need to listen to that. Right, I'm like, right, you know, right. I'm going I'm to listen to all of this. So I find him very engaging and interesting, even if I don't always love his writing. Right. Okay. Yeah. The other one that immediately came to mind, Mark Wade. I could listen to that guy forever. 
Um, Mark Wade is, again, the same idea. He's been around a long time. He's been around over 30 years in the industry. He's written everything, everybody. He's worked with everybody. Uh, he's done everything because he's worked as a retailer. He's worked as a publisher. He's worked as a writer. Like He's done most of the hats besides artists, obviously. He's, done, he's been an editor. So he has an interesting perspective because he's done all those different hats. He's worked on everything. So you can talk about his own work, his perspectives in the industry, how the industry has changed. Yeah, I would love to listen to a podcast with that guy just talking for Whenever I see him on anything, I need to download it because he's just so engaging. He's got a great voice, has a good sense of humor, and just likes – he's just really – he just has a really good way of putting together a phrase. He just never feels like he struggles for words. He always feels very well-spoken. It makes sense because he's a writer, but he has really good dialogue himself. Yeah, no, I, I – Mark Wade. both of those guys that you mentioned are very, very entertaining to listen to. And getting to know a little bit of the personality – of the writers makes you sometimes appreciate what you see them do in a book. You can mm-hmm. see how much fun they probably had writing that. And so you appreciate the story different because I remember him telling the story of how excited he was to tell this silver mm-hmm. surfer story. And so I read it knowing how much mm-hmm. it might mean to him too. Um, Mark Wade's a good one because he is the oh, man. I could listen to him talk about comics all day long because he's just like an encyclopedia. Another guy like that, but is a little bit too Hollywood now, would be Jeff Johns. Yeah. I, I, I don't know if I've heard him speak that often. Like, I don't know his voice. Like, I know the other's voices. Um, yeah, he does feel kind of Hollywood. He feels the more disconnected, right? Like, he's around, but not around. Whereas the other guys are like, have never really left. Right. And that and and I remember hearing him enough times and seeing him in enough documentaries to really be and, and kind of see how excited he would get when he would talk about stories coming up and he this was a guy who loves this stuff. Even if you don't like everything they do, when you read like Kurt Busick Avengers, it's, he really likes this too. He's not just you know when 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 you when that comes through on the page, it makes you. Um, it, it, you you interact with it a little differently or you might be a little more forgiving or even a little harder at times. Like, I thought you loved this stuff. How could you write this story, <laughs> right? Um, that's a good question. I don't know. Tom King can be pretty entertaining to listen to. Mm-hmm. He's very oh, funny. Sure. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of people that aren't coming to my mind right now. And it's been a while since I listened to some comic book interviews to be quite honest with you just because of the the change of my like what i'm doing at work so i'm not listening to as many of these conversations but i'm i don't know i could listen to jam de mateus often oh yeah that's did you see they just announced today a new book that he's working on next year yes in january yes i did and and i what excites me about him is his imagination how he, you know, he's one of those guys who's not quite on that level of, of Grant Morrison when it comes to that, but he's just... I get what you're saying. He feels very old, first of all, old school, but also he feels like the stories live through him. Like he like he wakes up and like the story just arrives. <laughs> like he lives through the characters and the characters tell him what is happening and not the other way around. Like he feels very like philosophical, but like very fascinating in terms of how he comes up with stories and how what stories mean. And I feel like... Yeah, when you when you read a J.M. DeMatteis script, there's always some subtext. There's something else going on there. It's not just a straight story. 
Um, and I like that. I like it. And you can almost almost make that a part of the experience as we pick up the story by JMD. What is he really saying? Or what's the subtext here? What is the other story that's being told? And I think you can find that every issue that he's ever done is there's something else there. It's not as simple as just what's on the page. And you don't get that from every writer. And the more you talk to him, the more you feel that. The more you feel like, I need to find this, you know, this where's Waldo of what what's really going on here? Like what what's the actual story that I can unearth from this script? Because yeah, he's he's doing so much there. Like he's not a simple writer. He's there's there's layers upon layers that are in a JMD script. And I've only appreciated that more as I've gotten older. Yeah. And and that's why I as I've gotten older, I've become uh, partial to his work, even things that I wouldn't normally read. I, I want to give it a chance because I, I realize that it's writers like that who give a, a certain level of, this sounds silly, but like a respectability to the art form of what these stories can accomplish when, when executed well. And when, a pers- when, when an artist and a writer have a, a synergy and they're just perfectly paired, you get these things that you may not understand now, but you're, it left an impression. And when you read it again, you'll realize this is, this is art. Mm-hmm. This is not just funny books or just kitty stuff, right? And then you can, when you appreciate that, you read, um, you know, Craven's Last Hunt differently. You mm-hmm. see, his, oh, for sure. yeah. So you, he's one of those guys where getting into the mind of it interests. I can listen to that all the time, but um, I don't know. That's a good question. I haven't listened to Donny Cates. Is that is that an interesting one? He seems like a pretty. Sorry, I apologize. It wasn't Donny Cates. It was it was Ryan Stegman, but he often had Donny Cates. On. Yes. Okay. Um, sorry, and uh, yeah, um, not everyone. Had, no, I, I I didn't. I haven't always loved the Ryan Stegman one. I wanted to love it more than I did. Um, he had a bunch of other people on the show with him who were interesting, but it wasn't a, it wasn't really what I was looking for um, generally. Uh, so I kind of moved on from it. I should probably double back at some point, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I've been getting caught up on, oh, I say getting caught up, I'm still like six or seven months behind, but I find that I've finally got caught up on most of the podcasts I listen to, and now I only have two podcasts left, of which I have like 50 episodes each, or something stupid like that, but at least I got all those other ones all up to date. Um, so I'm kind of, one of the ones that's on my list now is that when I, whenever any other podcast comes up, I finish those off, and then I go back to this list of you know 50-something, and one of them is Rob Observation. So I'm slowly wading through the, you know, Rob Liefeld um, ego stroking that is that show and sometimes it's very enjoyable and it's not about him at all and sometimes it's too much about him and it's just like okay I get it you love yourself too and you should um, because you know you're you're a big star in comics but also I want to hear about the other stuff like his perceptions and what he thinks about you know that when hearing him talk about the comics he grew up on and what they mattered to him and how it changed his perceptions on artwork and what meant to him you know why he started to draw certain ways that's fascinating I want to know that. I want to know what created a Rob Liefeld. I don't need to hear some of the stuff about, you know, I sold, you know, the most amount of this or my version of this was the, was the, you know, the best selling. I don't, I don't need to see that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, and I feel there's the, there's differences in, in how, when you speak to an artist and when you speak to a writer, the ways that you have to, except for maybe guys who, uh, artists who were really involved in, you know, the plotting, like around Friends, you can talk to him a little bit deeper about story, but I find that there's different types of directions you need to go with them, because their expressions are 
I don't know how to describe it, but I just find the writers get really sometimes philosophical and the artists, you can like veer off and talk about stuff that they like. You're absolutely right. Yeah, I think that you're right that the artists do get a little bit more philosophical about what they're putting together. And I, I guess you don't see that as much with the artists. I guess it's different, right? Because the artists are coming from some of the stories are been formulated in some way. And so now they get to, you know, take something and envision what it actually looks like on the page, but they're not coming up with a whole cloth. So it's an interesting dichotomy there. Yeah, sometimes they'll be like, you know, I saw what he wanted to do and I told him, you can't draw that. Here's how you can draw it. And it's almost mm-hmm. like they direct, like, here's how I'll make your feeling come out. You know? It's, oh, for sure. Right? One, but, of my, one of my favorite moments from a conversation I had with Ron Friends was when I told him that I liked this particular panel that he did in the backup to Clone Conspiracy Number 1. And he stopped me. And he was like, that's the only panel that I told him no, and I did what I wanted to do there. And I was like, well, it's an amazing panel. He's like, thank you. Because if that was something that he pushed back and chose because it wasn't in the plot that way. Uh, it was something that he kind of pushed for because he thought it was it was better this way. It was a better choice. And it happened to be one of my favorite panels of the book. And so it really validated for him. He was like, thank you. Like, that, I'm glad you noticed that. He's like, there's no way I could have known that that was something that he pushed for. And yet that was exactly what I zeroed in on. So he really, uh, you know, obviously, I can only imagine as an artist how you would appreciate someone being like, I really love this thing. Oh, that's the one thing I really put in my brought of myself. Uh, it was the one thing that I did not take direction on from someone else. It was just from me. Yeah, it's, it's validation, right? To let them know that what I fought for was worthwhile because people who care would notice. Right. So it's it's that there's I think we, we do this. We read these books long enough where people are like, I can't believe you're dissecting something like that. But when you see what is happening and you kind of appreciate the art on a different level, you can you become almost like an expert opinion in a way. It seems silly, but you put in all those hours where you you it's like hearing music. So when a person's trained their ear enough, even if they don't like certain music they can recognize this is good might not be for me but this is still good and i think that you noticing that in people's work is kind of like a it it hints towards that i have to say i think in general interviewing people over the last few years has made me interact with most artwork and writing very differently because i am thinking about is this for me or is it bad and so, like, sometimes, as you said, like, it may not be for me as an audience, but that doesn't make it a bad book. And I think as a younger kid, I wouldn't, wouldn't have been able to distinguish the two. I would have been like, wow, this is garbage. No, maybe it just wasn't for me as a person, and it wasn't for, you know, my particular taste, but it's still a good book. And I feel like I'm trying to become more just more, become more discerning to know that difference. And I think I have been able to do that for the most part. I think I often defend books sometimes because I'll be like, well, it's not for you, but it doesn't mean it's bad. Now, sometimes there's still a bad book, but I think it's just like with movies and TV, right? No one actually sets out to make a bad product. No. Sometimes things happen. Now, before we go into your word association, I <laughs> got intrigued by something behind you, so I have to ask, and this is something where I have to beg the indulgence of the of the listener. So, uh, other way, yeah. Um, so, you have mixed in like a Marvel Premiere classic hardcover with your soft covers, which to me seems like heresy. Why would you ever mix those things together? But it seems to be a Spider-Man thing. So I'm questioning, do you put your Spider-Man books chronologically? Yes. Do you put them alphabetically? Okay, so it is. See, I do everything alphabetical. So I have some books that are amazing Spider-Man on the spine. 
So that's in an amazing Spider-Man section. I have some that are just Spider-Man. I put that in the Spider-Man section. And then I also have epics, which are their own thing completely. So I ended up with, you know, Spider-Man in like two or three different places and depending on what it's called. So I'm very curious about yours because you have the Marvel Premier Classics and I also have those in their own section too. So you have the Marvel Premier Classic hardcovers. Then you have... Uh, Spider-Man mm-hmm. Tombstone, which is not even ASM itself. Mm-hmm. A few after that, you have In the Dark, Into the Darkness, or Into Darkness, which is that weird run right between, um, you know, the end of the next chapter and right before JMS. Then you have JMS coming in, which I think you're still missing in Volume Five that I have for you, right? That's right. Okay, so I'm just I was just curious what uh, what led you to do it that way, especially when you go a step below, you have your Captain America epics, and then you have the ugliness that is the Captain Shea paperback, which is a beautiful <laughs> book, but it's in the middle of these epics, and it just looks like, oh my God, why would you do this to yourself? <laughs> um, the Captain, sorry, my I'm not in the mic. The, that that I had um, before any of the epics. Of course, but why did you put it separate? Like I, I have it too. But I would okay. never, I would never merge it with the epics. Oh my gosh! Here, here. <laughs> I, I put that there just to bother you for you to see it. <laughs> what, it's funny because I don't think no one, no one else has ever mentioned anything about the shelf behind you. And all the interviews I've, you, you've talked with people, I can tell you're on camera with people, and I'm like, you know what? I'm gonna mention it. I, I gotta be the guy because why, why do you keep your book this way? So here's, here's the way that. It kind of makes sense. So I've set okay. these I've set these shelves up basically for my wife. Okay. Not not that she says this is how I want you to do it. If she wants to come to the shelf and read any of these characters, okay. here's the th- way to read it. So you know oh, where you okay. are in the stream of time. Okay. Not that she ever will, but okay. there's been times where she goes to the daredevil sh- part because she likes daredevil and i say this is the order you read it in for his story okay so in in the daredevil section i actually have man without fear okay before the 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 frank miller set interesting Okay. Just, just so if anyone wanted to read the stories, here's chronologically. how you, chronologically. So if a robber breaks into your house and goes to your shelf, he's like, "Wait a minute, this is in chronological order. That's I right. can enjoy this." That's right. And, <laughs> but, but, but then when there's when there's um like the, for this is no one cares about this podcast. This is gonna be for me and you for when we're old men. <laughs> That's okay though. That's okay. The the epic shelf here, the way I've set it up, is obviously chronological order. The captain is that it collects those issues that would be in the epic captain, almost like page. Are you uh, buying is, that that epic collection? Because isn't it coming out really soon? It's out. It's out. I saw it's it. I'm like, already. oh, there it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's upsetting. Get to trade it in. Ah, whatever. I kind of I kind of like that it makes this an event. That it's so different that it's like, and this happened in between. I don't know, man. From a collector, it just looks ugly. It looks like, oh my god, what's happening here? Don't, 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 please, don't put it in my head. Don't do that. But then, so, <laughs> so with the things that have like a specific um, spine design or of a um, trim cut, like at the at the top, you can't see, but I have all of the Marvel Now hardcovers. Mm-hmm. 
So those are all in their chronological oh, for order. Sure. Like I, I you have know. all the tra- all the Marvel Now trades from like what 2012 to now. There was the first section, and then there yeah. was the all new Marvel Now. So when they changed the trim slightly, so I yeah, I have the matching trims together, and then I have like kind of all the legacy stuff on its own shelf. And again, I, I bunch my epics together because they need to be. Um, I have thought about putting it more character centric in certain ways, but I just. I don't know. I, I can't do it. I, I'm, I'm an alphabetical guy. Uh, for a while, when Zach had lost screens for like two to two or three weeks, he would like come into the basement, pull <laughs> comics down, and just want to read them. So I took out like everything Amazing Spider-Man from like a certain section onwards. So I realized he was basically able to read from the relaunch in '98 to current because I had it all in trade. I'm like, go ahead, flip through it. And I don't think he was reading as much of the words at the time, but he read. He read. He flipped through a lot of those books. Um, but yeah, you know, so you're the librarian. She wants to read Daredevil. You're the curator and just like, this is the next one. That's basically how, and I do it for myself too, right? I like kind of seeing, um, where do I want to be in the stream of time? And so So, let me ask a question. I'm very curious. I was curious about this because it's a very specific era when the spines were very different and kind of ugly by modern standpoint. You have a very old version of Squatch and Supreme. How have you not upgraded that? Um, I had, I had the upgraded version. I gave okay. my upgraded version to someone who hadn't read it yet. Okay. And I kept this one because this is the first printing that had, uh, Oh, is it the first printing? It didn't look like, it. I didn't think this it, line was from the, the first printing. It's, uh, it's on the other shelf. Yeah. It's, it's the first, the only reason why I know is because I opened it up to check and it had the, okay the family inside saying that this printing has the drop of Mark Grunewald's blood, which was his, you know, his last rites or what, yeah, not yeah. his last rites, but his, it's kind of creepy, but I'm like, that's kind of cool. It's got some of his ashes in there. Like it's, it's cool. Right. Like yeah, the, the, well, it's very different. And it makes it like, this is his most proud work. This so is that piece you, of Why it. have you not boxed it up or slabbed it or something? Because it is a unique product. Um, just more so because like, I want to read it. I want to treat it the yeah. way it was meant to be. And I bought it in a you, used bookstore uh, for like okay. five bucks, you know. <laughs> they didn't know what they had. They had part of this guy's legacy. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. I'm like, this is a steal. And I, I already had a copy. I, I did um, consider finding – last year I found the omnibus, of like the original Squadron Supreme 12-issue omnibus. I don't know why they would make it that way, but I found a copy of it in Montreal. And when I went back this year, I was thinking if I find it, I should I should get that. It's kind of a cool thing to have because you they don't make that one anymore. But um, yeah, I don't. It's not like the story of this is one of my favorite things, but it is a cool piece of you know comic history and storytelling. It's a meaningful book, and and it was something important to that writer. Yeah, for sure. Well, I agree. No, I just again me just creeping <laughs> on things in your background and just had to mention certain things. You know what's funny is that it's only weirdos like us and i'll admit we're like we're so silly but we appreciate these things and so when someone asks you're not like i'll tell you why it's like that let me you're right oh yeah for sure so well yeah here's the thing right like for most of those things not everything but a lot of those those books on your shelf are going to have a story of some kind like why i bought it uh maybe where you bought it uh you know i mean maybe not i mean there's some things on my shelf i'm like oh yeah 
I bought that because I follow that run and it's not a very interesting story. But some of them are like, no, I've sold off some of the more interesting ones actually because I eventually upgraded past them. But some of them would be like, I used to have this copy of uh, Spider-Man Clone Genesis. This was published, I think, in 96 or 97. It was the original Clone Saga. And at the time, obviously, it was of interest. So they put it out in one of the you know those early trade paperbacks. And I had that for years. And that was a point of pride. I love that book. I have that one. I have that copy. One? Yeah. From like the mid-90s? Yeah. I also have this original Alien Saga. Oh, wow. So that brings me back. So I remember seeing someone in, like in my class had it, and I did not have that. And I was always so jealous because it was – because it wasn't a slightly oversized too. It's it's a weird trim cut. It is. Okay. I always thought it was – yeah, it was a little different. So I kind of miss that stuff. Um, there's some stuff where like eventually I'll get rid of them because I don't really care. But at the time I picked it up at like BNB and it was kind of different. It was like I have the original uh, coming of Bishop trade like from like I don't know '95 or something like really early. I have one of the early Cable and the New Mutants trades from again. You can tell like based on the paper quality, the print, like the overall fidelity. It's very old. Um, that kind of stuff like it's nice to have. But at the same time, if someone wanted it, I'd probably give it to them. <laughs> Like, yeah, I don't need them anymore. Yeah, no, it, I feel the same way. Like it's it's not. I'm not married to these things, but it's, you know, sometimes you want it. Like yeah, I'll, I'll take that copy of it if I could. If I could get an original copy of Dark Knight Returns to say like this is the first printing of it. I found it used. I like mm-hmm. this one. Like it just it, it brings you back to, I guess that time. This is what they had. It gives you an art. It's almost like an artifact. Oh, for sure. Yeah. So I hijacked. Your podcast from okay. your original topic. That's okay. As we slowly have less time le- uh, remaining on the clock, so why don't you hit me with some of your your uh, your word association? I'm we, ready. I'm excited. We've we've got an episode coming up where there's going to be more on this list. So whatever we don't cover on this, we'll talk about later. So all right, it was more just it, we've done basically what I wanted to do, but it was let's throw names out or let's throw things out there to see what kind where what road it takes us down. So. You know that I'm a big, um, you know, collect collection buyer. Whether it's an omnibus format or like a fat trade, I not mm-hmm. saying I buy people's collections, but you know, a big omnibus collector. Do you have um, a blind buy of any type of collection that you took a chance on? It's like this is going to be kind of pricey. I'm taking a chance on this buy, but I hope I like it. Do you have one that comes to mind that was that was worth it? I'm happy I did that. Uh, I don't know if I was, uh, hmm. The last part, I'm not sure. Um, the last part of your sentence there, like, was it totally worth it? Uh, I would say in a lot of ways, my first omnibus was a kind of a blind buy because I knew of the material. I'll say what it is in a second. I knew of the material. I had never really read it and I knew it was a sequel and I knew it was kind of reviled, but I love the idea of an omnibus having all of something. And that was very novel when it first started. And when they first started with omnibuses, I remember I'd see them at conventions, and they were like, I don't really need that many issues of Fantastic Four or whatever. Like, that wasn't really something I wanted at the time or really intrigued me. But what did intrigue me was having every issue of Secret Wars 2, <laughs> which I had never read, and I don't know if I've actually read all of them now. I don't know I think I have. Um, I don't know if it was worth it, but it was definitely, it started the omnibus game for me. Now, I don't really buy omnibuses anymore. I kind of ran out of space for omnibuses. Really, I shouldn't be buying anything, to be honest, because I'm kind of out of space and really need to start selling off comics and then trades and then maybe omnis to have room for stuff. So really, I shouldn't be buying anything. Um, but it really started me wanting omnis. And it made me excited for the idea of having all of an event. 
because at the beginning, that's how I kind of position myself as getting them is I'm going to have all of an, of an event. That's my focus. I'm not going to get something from an ongoing book. I'm going to get something that's from a concise moment in time and I'm going to get that. So I guess it was kind of a blind buy because I didn't really, hadn't really read it before. I knew of its reputation. Was it great? No, <laughs> it wasn't. But it was exciting to, to be able to have all of something. And that was very enticing. I don't know if that actually answers your question, but that's what first came to my mind. No, it gave me the story. That's, that's what I was looking for. Because the next question I was going to have was, what's your worst blind buy? And the answer could be both things, right? <laughs> it's not. Um, <laughs> see, blind buy is a hard, hard quantifier because I've read a lot and I know a lot. So I don't know if I've ever really bought something where like I really didn't know. Um, like, I guess technically I hadn't really read Steve Ditko, Doctor Strange when I bought the omnibus, but I knew of it. I knew the pedigree. I listened so I to that like, episode. Yeah. As you yeah, did it live. Was, yeah, that was cool. I did it live. Yeah. But that's not one where I can say it was really a true, like, that's what I mean. Like, I feel like I'm plugged in enough that I don't know if there's a lot of things I've bought that have been regal blind buys. I guess, I'm trying to think, I bought, uh, for better or for worse, the, uh, the, the cartoon strip. I had read it as a kid, but didn't really remember much about it. And then I knew Curtis was working on it. I'm like, you know what? I'll buy a volume of that. Maybe it'd be really enjoyable. And it was. I didn't expect it. I didn't expect it to be as enjoyable as I did. I remembered liking it as a kid, and I didn't know what my connection to be it would it be would be like. But as a parent, I loved it, and I thought it really spoke to me. Um, so I guess that maybe could count as something that kind of I bought without really knowing too much about it and really loved it. But I guess for the most part, I make it. I guess I make more, I don't, this sounds rude, Eric, so I apologize in advance. I guess I make slightly more informed decisions than some of the stuff I think you purchased. Because I think you are more open to like, I'm going to, I'm going to try something. I'm going to plunk down this money and really try this. And I think part of it's probably helped out because you do go to BMV and these other places where you can get into things at a lower cost. And I think you, you're more maybe trusting of the process of, I'm going to try this. I'm going to do something and buy something. I know nothing about it. I'm going to jump in. And maybe I just don't have that that fearlessness with my my ability to kind of jump into something. Whereas I find, generally speaking, if I buy it, I know something about it. Yeah, I, I try to read up on something and ask as many people's opinions about it, who I trust, what their thoughts are on it. Um, the one thing, this sounds very self-congratulatory. This whole episode is like, we just interview everybody so well and <laughs> we just know how to collect everything like a bunch of idiots. <laughs> um, the one thing that I, I can say... Um, I don't know how to describe it. It's not a, any special gift. It's that I'm, I'm able to put myself in the time of when that was made. And and I, I don't judge it based on the last thing I read. If it's something from the 60s, I go into an understanding. This is from the 60s and I'm going to appreciate it for what it was meant at that time. Like I kind of time travel with the book. And so... The only things, the only things that I find a harder time getting into is, is the you know more of the current stuff, just because it's just so much ebb and flow, and you don't know where we are, what's restarting, or what who what company even exists anymore. So it's kind of like it gives me an opportunity to read so many good stories that I may have ignored because I was trying to keep up all the time. So now I can go back and. Let me read something that was considered a really, really worthwhile game-changing book that I have the time to now because I'm not trying to know what what's this event now. It's okay. Yeah. I think actually I've thought about it a bit further. I think I bought – I knew I was going to interview Michael Lark. So I was like, you know what? I've never read Lazarus, so I'm going to read Lazarus. And so I didn't really know anything about it. So I bought like four or five trades because I'm like, I want to be 
prepped for this interview. I think I'll enjoy it. I like Greg Graca. I like Michael Lark. I should like this. And I did. But I really didn't know anything about it going in. So I guess that maybe would qualify as, again, one of those more blind buys that I really didn't know much about it besides the creators themselves. I knew it was... I don't even know if I really knew even like a bullet point description of the book. I was just like, I know this is great. I know everyone says this is fantastic. It's a bunch of creators I love. Let's give it a shot. And I bought, as I said, four or five trades at once. Um, just And partially as, as research, obviously, so I could talk to someone, but also because I was interested. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's what uh, the beauty of opening yourself up to reading. I, I mean, we, I read mostly comic books, but I'm not afraid of trying anything. Because you're pleasantly surprised a lot of times you realize like that's exactly what I wanted to read and I didn't know that that would turn out to be as enjoyable. Like I did not expect to enjoy Green Arrow the way I did. I thought I would like it. I wouldn't buy a book if I thought, it, if I thought well, I'm going to hate this so let me put sure. down money. But I didn't expect it to be something that – you know sometimes you're, you're going through stuff and because you're doing prep work and you're you know keeping track with time, you kind of see like, how many issues are left in this thing? Okay, there's four more issues into the book. I don't know if that ever happens to you, but I want to know how many. I'm counting down. Mm-hmm. But when you're really into something, you you lose track of like, oh my goodness, I'm already this far into it. I must be really liking this. Yeah. And that's what was happening with with Green Arrow, for instance, from Mike Grell. Didn't expect to like it the way I did. Um, it's interesting you say that. So in that same period, I bought a question, and I I like it's okay. I don't love it. A lot of people love the question by Denny O'Neill and Cowan. And I don't love it. And it was okay. And a little bit hard to read at times. But I bought it because, and this is going to sound stupid, but I really love the way that the character was interpreted on Justice League Unlimited. And like, there's one episode of Justice League Unlimited where I was just like, I was all in on the question. Like, oh my God, this is amazing. I want to read a comic of that guy. And I was like, I'm going to go read the question by Denny, Denny O'Neill. It's supposed to be amazing. And I didn't love it, and it was a little hard to get through, and I have it all, and if someone took it from me, I don't know if I'd replace it, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, I think I'd be like, I read it, and it happened, but I don't think I want to read it again. I pre-ordered that, because they finally put it out in Omnibus, and I've only heard, from from the sounds of it, it seems like something that I would like, so I said, okay, I gotta get this, because I've just heard, you know, the world about it, and they should make it, and when's it gonna come out one day, and I gave the... um, Jeff Lemire black label book the question mm-hmm. I didn't like it it wasn't for me so I think you you might want to reconsider that pre-order yeah I might I'm thinking of things to uh, take off the list because of things that I, I do know I, I definitely want so I'm always looking at like do I do I have that in trade should I replace it and upgrade it is it worthy how would I prefer I mean, to read that yeah, story there are six trades of the question that are on my shelf that could migrate to you. <laughs> You have the whole series? Yeah, I bought them all. We'll, we'll talk after the show. <laughs> uh, even at least to try it, to see, right? Yes, to for see, sure. Right. You know, I, 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 want, I wanted to like it more. Because I'd heard a lot about its, its Zen philosophy and kind of what, what the thought process was of the character. It's very kind of grimy and, and dirty and dark. Like, it's definitely a very, it's a very early, late 80s, early 90s book. Like, it feels very dirty. Um, you know, like, you know how you, you hear about how, you know, Times Square used to be a place you didn't want to go to because it would be riddled with crime? It feels like that. Like, it feels like a very 
dark and dirty book and you know you have to be okay with that and i wasn't i wasn't against that but it's just something about it i don't know it just wasn't for me and that's okay but i feel like if you liked longbow hunters and you like that era of green arrow you might really enjoy the question that's what i was thinking too that's why i went because it, it seemed like they when feel i feel like aesthetic cousins to each other like the the grell art and the cowan art doesn't feel that dissimilar from each other it feels like they're of the same they are obviously of the same era they're, and Cowan like Cowan is it does a lot of that green not a lot but he does a, a, a bit of a run on the uh, green arrow in that omnibus that I was reading so yeah it, it I I see what you're saying I totally see what you're saying oh there they are man when did those come out I've never even I don't even think I've seen those before on the shelf Let's see. The first one came out. I'll tell you right now. This is a riveting material for your listeners. Uh, it was originally published in... Two, oh, wow. 2007? Hmm. And you read the I whole series right. or you or you couldn't get through it all? I'm pretty sure I read it all. And you appreciated it for what... It, you understand why people might love it. Yeah, I definitely did understand why people loved it. It wasn't... And this is my fault as a reader, not the fault of the creators. I don't know if it was the question I wanted. Again, I, I, ah. I came from it having loved a certain rendition of the of the question, and what I ended up getting wasn't quite that. And it's not the it's not the fault of the creators. It's not the fault. It's the fault of me as a as a viewer of wanting something that I really liked, a certain interpretation, to be replicated in a different format, and which came afterwards. And it wasn't going to happen, and that's okay. And again, I may not have felt that way when I was younger. Um, but I think I've, I'm, I've had a certain place where I can say that now is that, you know, it, it's it's not the creator's fault that I didn't engage with this. It's mine is that it just wasn't for me. And that's OK, because there's people who love this work and who, you know, think it's one of the best comics they've ever read. And all the more power to them because it was for them. It spoke to them. It just didn't speak to me. Mm-hmm. I was actually going to ask ask you a question just like that, What which uh What's the book that everyone loves that you just don't care for? I get maybe that's not the book, but it was kind of the the answer that I was um, the way you explained it answers that sort of question. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of them. We were on the list of ones where I don't think I love it as much as other people do. I think one where I like it and I can see the game changingness of it, but I don't enjoy it enough is uh, actually um, Dark Knight Strike. Sorry. Batman, what's it called? Dark Knight Returns. Dark Knight Returns, sorry. Uh, Of course, DKR. Um, I don't think I love it as much as other people. A lot of people, like, again, that changed comics for a lot of people. And I can see it. But it's just, it doesn't speak to me as something I, I really want to read that often, Whereas, which is interesting because like I read year one and I'm like, I want to read this every day. Like This is fantastic. Same writer, but it's very different vision. And I don't know if it's just because he's more restrained and working within, you know, kind of current continuity, so to speak, or like doing a flashback story as opposed to kind of having carte blanche to do whatever he wants in the future. But um, I just find that speaks so much more to me as a story. I love year one. It's so engaging. Mazzucchelli's artwork is a revelation. And so I feel like I could read that every day, whereas I DKR. I understand its significance, like you said. Like I understand its importance to the industry and what it meant, uh, how what it meant for publishing, what it meant for art to art and story, and what it meant to the people who were creators to see Batman done that way. I also think it changed how people started writing Batman because of that, and not necessarily for the better. Like we I ended agree. up getting super paranoid dark Batman for a long time, and we don't always need it to be that way. It's kind of like. Mark Wade took Daredevil, who had been getting darker and darker and more depressing, and figured out a way to be, well, how can he still be Matt, but the book be a little bit lighter and more fun? 
And so he did that in a way that didn't feel disingenuous, didn't feel like it made everything that came before not matter. It still mattered, but you know, took it in a different direction. Now, of course, it's interesting that immediately after Mark Wade leaves, you have Charles Sewell, who brings it right back into the grime. So like, it's like you have this brief bright spot where maybe Matt Murdock's life wasn't complete shit, and then it goes right back into the into the crapper, because that's what people like to do with Daredevil. They like to crap on him as a character and see how you get him through that crapper. But it's nice when you have these brief moments where it's a little bit lighter, and it doesn't happen often. And Mark Wade is one of the few moments when Matt Murdock had uh, not quite a, a huge crap ton or crap stick of a life. Yeah, it, it's true, and and people get upset when you when you dare change something that the character is going through. But after a while, like I don't really need to read much more what's going on with Batman because there's probably a lot of those stories that have already been told prior to that I probably have a nostalgia for now that it's going to be you know you'll be hard pressed to top it but at some point it'd be nice to see him presented with a little bit more like a, a little a little bit of light in his life right yeah and, sure. and it does and I agree with you that the Frank Miller effect became like what bothers me is that it's so definitive to everybody where there's mm. so many and I'd like that attempt that grant morrison made to say like let's look at all the parts of batman not sure. just that i i mean it's very telling obviously that you know we finally got batman and superman in the movie together and of course it was dark knight returns was what we got basically like that's, right that's what that's what they ended up putting on the screen instead of something else and you know it's ever since uh, Frank Miller did that that story that you have more of the confrontational attitude between Batman and Superman exists more because of that than anything else. Like that's why you have them. Like John Byrne had a bit of a adversarial thing in in uh, what was it, uh, Man of Steel? But it still felt like it, it blossomed into a friendship later. Like right. it starts off in one place. It built it respect over. Exactly. Whereas you have something where, like, Frank Miller makes it, like, much more adversarial between the two of them. But again, in the last 30 years, you have these moments, like, Jeff Loeb writing Batman and Superman was very nice because it felt like they were friends. They understood each other. They understood how they both represented something to each other that they, they, they would never be, both for good and for bad. And that, you know, they both could do other things. And it never felt overwhelmingly dark. It felt like, and part of it, because it was about Superman. Superman was the light part. You had the dark part was Batman. And they would both rub off on each other in different ways. And it was interesting to see how that was, you know, kind of taken to different extremes. So I felt like that was a moment where their relationship did not feel adversarial, felt very cordial and much more interesting because I want to see them be friends. I want to see how they work together and how, you know, these two opposites really work and come together as opposed to one of them not trusting the other and kind of being a dick all the time. And yes, it's always Batman being the dick. It's not Superman. <laughs> um, you know what? We, we ran out of time. This has been so much fun and I'm happy that we are going to uh, potentially see each other very soon. And be able to in person and everything. In person and everything, we're going to do our classic at the baseball game podcast, our, our annual uh, pilgrimage to the Rogers Center, and I'm looking forward. So I can to tell it. you in advance of that, so it's going to be interesting. So first of all, in theory, we're supposed to have masks on, so we might be a little muffled. Yes, but what's interesting is that 
So I've sat in these seats already. So there's really no one around us and no one behind us. So the extra talking in terms of people being really close by will be minimized. Now, obviously, crowd sounds will still be there as usual. But in terms of the actual people around us, as we're trying to talk, will be a lot less. But us ourselves might be a little muffled because of masks. So it's going to be an interesting uh, connection. That's true. And so I got to say something. You cannot wear that hat when we go. They're playing the Yankees. Don't you dare. Okay. No, I, w- I won't do that. I won't. I have. I have Blue Jay gear, Chapman. I'll be good. I'll be a good guest. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you, Adam, for coming on the show. It's it's nice to finally reunite uh, on on the Cave of Solitude. We tried a couple months ago, and there was our our tech was temperamental, but this is fun, and it's and I'm glad that we're going to get together soon. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, we will be back with more episodes of the Cave of Solitude. Rate and review the show, and listen to Comic Shenanigans, one of the best comic book podcasts that you can listen to. Take care, everybody.